1: Hello, this is Natasha Heller, one of the hosts of New Books in Buddhist Studies, part of the New Books Network. Michelle Wong's new book is Mandala's in the Making, the Visual Culture of Esoteric Buddhism at Dunhuang. This work joins a growing body of scholarship on esoteric Buddhism in China. Wong's research is an important contribution for the way in which she centers murals, portable paintings, ritual manuscripts, and diagrams connected to the mandala of eight great bodhisattvas. She traces how the use of this mandala changed over time and how it was shaped by the distinct cultural and linguistic context at Dunhuang, a key Buddhist site on the Silk Road. This book will reshape scholarly understanding both of mandalas in China, but also of Dunhuang as a Buddhist site. Welcome, Michelle. I'm wondering if we could start by hearing
0: how you ended up in the study of Buddhist art. Okay. Um, Well, gosh, I think that... um as with many scholars, um, a lot of that really rested on the strengths of my graduate program and in particular what um, my graduate advisor was was working on. And there's a really strong legacy at um, Harvard, of course, of um, studies in Buddhist art and also in Dunhuang art. And um, at that time, I had already had some background in Buddhist art. So that was one direction which I could have gone for Um, PhD studies in my dissertation. Um, Another strong interest of mine was archaeology, but um, at the time I think the um, course offerings and the interests of other graduate students aligned in um, such a way that um, there was just a lot of support, I think, and resources for studying Buddhist art in graduate school.
1: So how did you end up uh, working on this particular research topic?
0: Um, I discovered this research topic in the Rebelle Fine Arts Library at Harvard, so I was fishing for a seminar paper topic, and um, those of your listeners who are familiar with the resources for Dunhuar will be familiar with a multi-volume series. Um, these are large, um, oversized folio volumes bound in orange, um, uh, published in Jiangsu, and um, each of these volumes focuses on anywhere between one to a few of the k Shrines at Dunhuang and provides really um, high quality um, illustrations of the mural paintings. Uh, Essentially catalogs, um, these are essentially illustrated catalogs of the mural paintings. And I was looking for a research paper topic and I um, tended then and still do try to look for topics that uh, appeal to me. Uh, that just appealed to me visually that um, piqued my curiosity. And so I found myself flipping through each of these orange bound volumes one by one. And then I came across one, uh, which was for Mokal K-14. And of course, one thing led to another. So I wrote about that for my seminar paper. And I felt that there was still enough left to do on the topic, um, that the interest was there that um, I could work on it for a dissertation topic. And at that time, I felt strongly then, and still do now, that there was um, still so much to discover that um, that could also form the basis of a book um, beyond the dissertation. It's fascinating.
1: Um, Turning to the book itself, you open in the introduction by talking about how mandalas have been understood by scholars up to this point, uh, and in particular, how Japanese mandalas have influenced the interpretation of Chinese ones. So how would you say your work fits into this existing body of scholarship? Right.
0: So I think there's probably a really fascinating story to delve into regarding how our knowledge of um, uh, studies of Japanese Buddhist art, um, the methodologies that we use for studying Japanese Buddhist art and, and Japanese Buddhism have affected um, studies of Chinese Buddhism and Chinese Buddhist art. And what I try to unpack in the introduction to the book is the impact of uh, the Shingon Two Realms Mandala, um, studies of the Shingon Two Realms Mandala on Buddhist mandalas elsewhere in Asia. And one of the very distinctive characteristics of the Shingon Two Realms Mandala is that we are talking about um, paired paintings, um, a pair of portable paintings. Uh, So the earliest polychrome set Um, is located in Toji uh, in Kyoto, and very, very large silk paired paintings, and these were hung opposite one another uh, with a small altar for offerings in front of each painting, and then with a larger altar in the middle. And the two paintings uh, represent the Garbadattu mandala and the vajradhatu mandala, and they're believed to have their own textual bases in the Buddhist canon. And so what I had found when I was doing research for my dissertation and the book was that it was, in fact, not uncommon to describe um, mandalic phenomena um, throughout Asia, um, even outside of Japan, as adhering to the two-realm system. So for example, in the introductory essay to MOCA K-14, Um, In the illustrated catalog that I just described earlier, um, the folio book, the scholar um, at the Dunhuang Academy actually tries to interpret the paintings in this cave shrine as adhering to the um, Japanese Shingon Tu Realms mandala. And we see the effect of this elsewhere as well. So, for example, in the introduction, um, I talk a little bit about the previous scholarship on the Fa si reliquaries. Uh, so, very important Tang Dynasty finds. These have been studied by several scholars. And it's very clear that these nesting reliquaries and then a sculpture of a kneeling bodhisattva that was meant to support the finger bone relic from Fa Man si. um, So, these are located in Shanxi province in central plains China. Um, it seems very clear that there is mandalic imagery. And again, scholars um, initially tried to argue that the iconography adhered to the two Rams Mandla of, of Japanese Shingon Buddhism. And more recently, there's been some pushback against that in the more recent scholarship on Fa Man Si. And this is quite interesting because it really, I think it really causes us to, to ask questions about whether esoteric Buddhism in China Uh, whether this was a precursor to esoteric Buddhism in Japan, and of course there's a long history of um, the typologies of mixed and pure esotericism, um, terms that were never used um, during the Tang or Han periods in pre-modern East Asia, or whether what we see at Dunhuang, which is quite, uh, by the period that I talk about, Uh, quite culturally distinct from the central part of China, whether we're talking about uh, a very different uh, set of practices, uh, very different Buddhist phenomena.
1: That's fascinating. And I think that your book really shows that it is a different situation. So when you move into the when we look at the first chapter, you've titled this from Dharani to Mandala. And I wonder if you might be again, by explaining that relationship for us, how do Dharani and Mandala
0: relate? So, uh, Dharani should be familiar, I think, to many of your listeners. There's been a rich body of recent scholarship on Dharani's, uh, which are Buddhist incantations. And this particular chapter of the book actually draws most closely from the dissertation and the sort of questions that I was asking at that time. And I was particularly interested in one uh, Dharani Sutra. Uh, pertaining to the Sutra of, of the revered and Victorious Dharani of the Buddhist Ushnisha, or the 14 uh, Sunshan the Ushnisha Vijaya Dharani. And this uh, circulated widely during the Tang Dynasty in China. So we really see evidence of this in many parts of China and not only in the Central Plains region, but in Dunhuang as well. And some of the most familiar ways in which uh, this darni was, or I guess devotion to the Darni was carried out was through the erection of stone pillars. And what I was interested in was the um, ritual manuals that were based on this Darni that uh, reimagined it anew in the context of offering rituals. And so what I do in this particular chapter is I look at a series of ritual manuals that are based upon this particular Buddhist incantation. And in particular, two ritual manuals um, associated with monks um, who in turn were very strongly associated with the development of esoteric Buddhism with the translation of esoteric Buddhist sutras, namely Shubhakar Simha and Amogavajra. And in their ritual manuals, what we see is that that emphasis on the erection of stone pillars, and these were stone pillars um, that had the syllables of the Dharani, the characters of the Dharani carved on their surfaces. So what we see is that that practice is no longer present in the ritual manuals, but rather what they're describing instead is the production of mandalas, uh, an assembly of deities, and in particular, a configuration in which there are eight attendant deities um, around a central deity, a central Buddha, and Each ritual manual uh, describes a very particular type of image-making process pertaining to this dharani, uh, pertaining to the uh, ritual offerings based upon the dharani. So in one ritual manual, in the, let's see, uh, one ritual manual, the type of image-making process that is described is Uh, an image that is painted directly onto an altar. Uh, This was in the manual that was attributed to Moggavajra. And this in turn, the reason why the deities were painted on the surface of the altar was that these images were meant to serve as a receptacle for the deities of the mandala um, and in fact for the visualization of the deities. So the idea was that during the process of visualizing the deities of the mandala, that in turn in um, this practice in was tacked onto the dharani, to the Buddhist incantation, that uh, these images uh, that were painted onto the mandala were receptacle for the visualized deities. So the idea was that um, this was meant to show the deities to their proper places. And then another type of image that is explained in the, in the ritual manuals is associated with Shubakar Simha, And this is quite interesting because he describes something a little bit different. So this is meant to be a diagrammatic drawing, and this is made on a portable support, so not on a fixed surface, not on an altar, but rather on a piece of cloth or silk. And what he describes is painting a circle and then dividing that circle further into nine circles, and then each of which in turn uh, serves as the... Uh, place for one of the deities of the mandala. So um, I find this quite fascinating. And of course, whenever we look at this type of material, we have to keep in mind that they are prescriptive rather than descriptive. But it is fascinating to me to think about uh, the various material forms in which mandalas may have taken, and particularly in these ritual manuals that are associated with two very important monks of the Tang dynasty.
1: Right. So mandalas have this really close relationship with ritual practice
0: yes absolutely so
1: in chapter two which is titled the crowned buddha and narratives of enlightenment the mandala of the eight great bodhisattvas is central to your discussion and i'm wondering and i know this is a little hard to do through without images um, but could you describe this mandala it's so central to your work could you describe this
0: for us Yes, so this is um, an iconographic configuration that takes a number of material and visual forms. So the Malavi Great Bodhisattvas um, described very simply pertains to a configuration in which there is a central deity, a central Buddha, and this could vary widely throughout Asia. So, for example, in the material that I discuss. Uh, the central deity is commonly Vairokshana or So in other parts of Asia, the central deity could, for example, be Amitabha. And some of these variations are inherent in the text pertaining to the very Bodhisattvas, in which it is not very clear um, that is the identity of the central deity is not very clear to begin with. And so um, this very likely enabled iconographic variations um, on this program. And in addition to the central Buddha, there are eight attendant deities, eight bodhisattvas. And these could be arranged around the central Buddha in a variety of spatial forms. So they could be arranged, for example, in two vertical rows. And this is a spatial uh, configuration that we see in some of the examples of the of eight great bodhisattvas, especially Uh, rock carvings that are seen in early Tibet. Um, This is also a configuration um, that we see at um, Dunhuang well, for example, in Yilin Caves um, 20 and 38. And then another spatial configuration is that we might see the eight bodhisattvas arranged instead in two rows on either side of the Buddha. So rather than being arranged in two rows, they would be arranged, excuse me, in two rows. Ah, Four rows total, excuse me. So two rows on the left side of the Buddha and two rows on the right side of the Buddha. And this is something that we see as well at Dunhuang and also in early Tibet. And then finally another configuration is one in which the eight bodhisattvas are arranged in a circular form around the central Buddha. And this is something that we see at Dunhuang as well. And so in addition to these different spatial configurations, Uh, The mandala also appears in a variety of material forms. So in some cases, this was a fixed image. So there are some well-known examples of this particular mandala in Western India. Uh, So, and uh, let's see, there are also uh, examples that are painted on silk. So there's one important example. Uh, that's housed in the British Museum. And then, of course, this was also conveyed in mural paintings as well. So this there are a lot of variations, uh, both in the spatial arrangement of the deities and also material format throughout Asia. So in this
1: chapter, which I I mentioned the title, you talk about a, cr- a crowned Buddha, um, and how the image of this crowned Buddha points to another understanding of enlightenment. So, what does this crown Buddha represent?
0: So you mentioned the crown Buddha, and this is actually one intriguing, um, consistent aspect of the iconography of the Mandala great Bodhisattvas as we see it in early Tibet and also at Dunhuang. So I'm looking at the period between the eighth to tenth centuries, and this by Appalachian crown Buddha, we are referring simply to a central Buddha who wears a tall crown and then the Buddha is typically shown seated on a lotus pedestal. There are two lions uh, below the lotus pedestal and then the Buddha typically holds his hands in the mudra meditation or the dhyana mudra with one hand um, held above the palm of the other hand, and I think the consistency in the lion throne and in the uh, mudra of meditation, the dhyana mudra, and also the crown is very important to point out because, as I mentioned earlier, there are many variations on the mandala of great bodhisattvas, not only in the spatial layout of the attendant deities, but also in the central Buddha uh, itself and so this is something that we see in early tibet and also at Dunhuang. and what drew my attention in looking at the scholarship on the mannavek great bodhisattvas um, especially in the context of early tibet uh, was that they frequently evoked akanishta heaven and i started to look into this a little bit more especially into the textual sources pertaining to akhanishta heaven and as it turns out this is A realm that is referred to in a number of Buddhist texts, both pertaining to, uh, I guess what we say, exoteric as well as esoteric Buddhism, and this relates to the heaven of the final limit of form. And more simply put, this was where Shakyamuni is described in a variety of texts as having been crowned by the Buddhas of the Ten Directions. Um, so this would account for the crown worn on the head, um, and then is recognized as Mahavirokshana. And so I interpret the iconography of the crown Buddha then in light of these consistent iconographic characteristics, be um, seated on the lion throne, uh, the Dhyana Mudra, and also the crown, and also in light of two. Narratives pertain to the Buddha's enlightenment. Um, so I have just described one um, that is what I would characterize as the alternative understanding of the Buddha's enlightenment um, that is his coronation in Akanishtha heaven. And then the narrative of the Buddha's enlightenment that many of us are more familiar with is the story of Siddhartha Gautama meditating under the Bodhi tree. Um, And then, of course, uh, withstanding the assault of Mara and then uh, attaining awakening um, by daybreak. So because of the conjunction of the mood of meditation and also the crown, more on the Buddha's head, um, I conclude that these collectively pertain to the Buddha's meditation, or I should say Siddhartha's meditation, or the Bodhi tree, as well as the coronation in Akanishta heaven. So I believe that in this particular context, that is in the context of early Tibet and then the Tibetan period at Junhuang and also the post Tibetan period, um, so this spans the 8 to 10 centuries, that this might, this particular iconographic form, the crown Buddha, in the context of the eight bodhisattvas mandala, might have been drawn from a conflation. Um, of these two narratives of enlightenment, that is both the meditation under the Bodhi tree as well as the coronation um, of the Buddha's Mahavira and Akanishita Heaven. And another fascinating thing is that when I took a look at textual sources relating to Akanishita Heaven, um, they frequently describe the Buddha as seated on a lion throne. And so this, I think, accounts for the third aspect of this iconography.
1: So in this chapter, you use a phrase that I thought was really interesting. And that is visual and linguistic bilingualism. So what does this mean in the case of Dunhuang?
0: So my thoughts about this emerged from reading the scholarship, um, this really rich body of scholarship that's produced in the past few decades on bilingual manuscripts at Dunhuang. And so these are manuscripts that were brushed in more than one language. Um, in some cases, another language um, uh, was in interior source. There's also um, a rich body of dictionaries for translation and, and that sort of thing. And alongside this body of scholarship um, is also a body of scholarship that demonstrates that even after the uh, period of the uh, Tibetan presence in Dunhuang, so uh, Dunhuang was ruled um, by the Tibetan empire, Uh, between 786, roughly 786 to 848. So there's some discussion about those dates, but um, basically from the late or the third quarter of the 8th century to the middle of the 9th century. And what is so fascinating is that um, this body of scholarship demonstrates that, um, first of all, not only did Tibetan continue to be used as a writing system in Dunhuang and in Central Asia, and very likely because this is a phonetic writing system, unlike Chinese, and therefore could be adapted to the writing not only of Tibetan, but other languages as well. And the evidence from the manuscripts demonstrates that the post-Tibetan rulers of Jinhong also used Tibetan to communicate with other um, with Central Asians during the, the post-Tibetan period. Um, but based upon the research, especially by um, scholars who worked on Tibetan manuscripts, uh, we now also know that many of the ritual manuscripts, especially those pertaining to esoteric Buddhist rituals, uh, very likely date not only to the post-event period, but uh, maybe as late as the 10th century. And so I sort of thought about the visual impact of seeing different writing systems side by side. And that gave me maybe sort of a, a methodological like, special apparatus for thinking through the conjunction of different painting styles that we see at Dunhuang in the Mokau and also in the Yulin cave shrines. And one thing that I found particularly fascinating about the mural paintings is that, and I should say that there are four examples of mural paintings of the man of Eight Great boysafas, or I should say they are in four caves at Dunhuang. So these are uh, Yulin cave 25, Bokau Cave 14, and then Yulin Caves 20 and 38. Um, I think Yulin Cave 25 is probably the most well-known because the amount of scholarship that um, has already been carried out on that particular painting. Uh, But going back to what I was saying then about the different painting styles is that I had noticed for some time that it seemed very obvious to me that the Mandala Mandelavek Rebussat was painted in such a way that it looked very Tibetan in style. And what I mean by this is... um, uh, an elongation and uh, robustness um, in the body. Um, and this is very different for what I characterize as the Tong style, uh, in which the face and the body are very, very round, uh, without the kind of elongated sensual quality of the Tibetan style. And uh, there are, of course, issues associated with terming one style Tibetan one style tongue, but um, the reason why I use these terms is because I believe that the painting styles were employed simultaneously in order to suggest um, perhaps the, the coexistence of uh, Tang and Tibetan cultures at, at Dunhuang, And so uh, we not only see the conjunction of the Tang Tibetan painting styles, uh, but in some cases, um, what's really fascinating is that at Yulin Caves 20 and 38, there are paintings, two paintings in both caves, of the Manlev Aikwai Bodhisattvas um, that seem to be paired with one another. And what we see is that one of those, in one of those paintings, uh, the Buddha is painted in a distinctively Tibetan Himalayan style. And then in the other painting, the Buddha will have been painted in a Tang style. Um, so we actually see those two painting styles literally face face to face with one another. And some scholars have argued that the reason why we see the conjunction of different painting styles in the cave shrines um, might have to do with their having been painted at different times. And I actually tend to disagree with that because I have visited the cave shrines and I don't see the markers, the obvious markers of overpainting um, that one sees in other cave shrines. And I, instead, I try to think of the conjunction of painting styles um, in a way that might bring us back to the bilingualism that we see in the Turnham manuscripts, and so I try to think of this as a purposeful mingling of um, painting styles rather than uh, painting styles that were attributed to different historical periods. So, in essence, what I was trying to do was to look at the Dunhuang manuscripts not only as a basis for the iconographic programs of cave shrines, but to sort of dig a little bit deeper and see whether there was anything else going on in the manuscripts, that is, um, putting the two languages, Chinese and Tibetan, side by side, and whether that was reflected in other ways in the cave shrines as well. And I think that that is reflected in the conjunction of the and Tibetan painting styles.
1: So you've just used the phrase purposeful mingling, and that has a lot to do with the history of Dunhuang. And so thinking about turning to chapter three, which is titled Mandalas and Historical Memory. In that chapter, you began with Zhang Yichao ousting the Tibetans in the mid ninth century. Why was this particular event significant in tracing the use of mandalas at Dunhuang?
0: Well, we know that the Eight Great Bodhisattvas was very important under the Tibetan Empire, even prior to um, the historical event that you that you just alluded to, that is uh, Zhang Yichao's ouster of the Tibetans from Dunhuang. Um, there are, of course, also still some questions ring about how large that. Tibetan presence actually was, and how large the population was even after this particular event. And the mandala of the Great was important um, because there are a few examples in which uh, the dedicatory inscriptions state that the mandala was painted in order to commemorate a peace treaty, a very important peace treaty, um, of the 820s between the Tang and Tibetan armies. And when we think about the rulers of the Return to Army, that is, the Chinese rulers of Dunhuang after the mid ninth century, after the ouster of Tibetans, um, I think it's important to keep in mind that uh, because of the long period of Tibetan rule in Dunhuang, uh, about, uh, let's see, almost, uh, I guess, over 60 years or so, that um, people like Zhang Yixiao grew up in what was very much a culturally Tibetan environment. So. We do know, for example, that, and this was not uncommon, this was probably not uncommon for the time that he had a Tibetan name. He himself brushed Buddhist manuscripts in Tibetan. And so um, this was simply the sort of environment that they grew up in. And so I hypothesize that for these reasons, um, that the rulers of the Return to Allegiance Army, which ruled Dunhuang after the ouster of the Tibetans in roughly 848, that they continued to... um, employ the Mandala of Eight Great Bodhisattvas purposely in their cave shrines. So not only the Zhang clan, but also the Cao clan, which ruled Dunhuang, after the the Zhang clan uh, lost power. And and so I think that this could explain, for example, the continuation of the Mandala of Eight Great Bodhisattvas at Dunhuang really well into the return to allegiance army period. And secondly, and this goes back to the purposeful mingling of these painting styles, um, I look at cave 156, and this is a cave that is very well known for an ecographic program in which the victory of Zhang Chao is memorialized in a um the mural paintings that are um show the procession of, of Zhang Chao, his victorious procession and victory over the Tibetans. And what's really fascinating about this cave is that uh, there is a niche in the west wall which houses the Buddha icon and the west wall niche has a truncated pyramid ceiling and this is a very common ceiling type that we see in Dunhuang, not only in the main ceiling of the king shrine, that is in the main chamber of the cave shrine, um, but also in some of the niches inside of which clay sculptures, clay icons were installed. And what I mean by truncated pyramid ceiling is basically a ceiling that has four ceiling slopes and then the pinnacle of the ceiling is flat. And what's very interesting about this is that there are two deities painted on the east the eastern ceiling slope um, of the west wall niche so they're very hard to see. If you are standing right in front of the niche and looking at the icon you would actually have to kind of lean into the niche and then twist your body around and then turn your face upward in order to get a view of the paintings on the east wall. And I should backtrack for a moment and say that the paintings on the other ceiling slopes, the ones that are easy to see from the perspective of the viewer who's standing right in front of the um, the, the clay icon, um, that those are all painted in the standard Tang style, the quote-unquote Tang style, um, but the paintings that are located on the east ceiling slope are painted in what I describe as the Tibetan style, and they're very much hidden from the viewer. And so I hypothesized that um, this might be due to, first of all, the continuation of um, maybe an an, an interest in Tibetan culture, uh, Tibetan language um, in Dinhuang, even after uh, the end of the Tibetan period. And secondly, that it might have been hidden from view, Because uh, from historical chronicles, it seems very likely that even though the Zhang clan pledged allegiance to the central Tang court in Chang'an, that there was still some um, suspicion about where their loyalties actually lay. So we know, for example, that uh, Zhang Yichao sent envoys multiple times to Chang'an before receiving official recognition from the court. And then also his older brother had to stay in Chang'an as a hostage in order to demonstrate the loyalty of the clan. And so uh, for me, this is particularly interesting because this painting, uh, this that is almost hidden from view, um, really seems to complicate or contradict the straightforward message of Jain Shao's victorious procession into Dunhuang. And so... Um, going back to the Tibetan cultural environment in which Xiaoyin Shao was reared and how that relates to the monlev of eight great boy safhas. So I believe that there are cave shrines at Dunhuang and also at the uh, well at the Mokau Caves and also at the Yilin Caves um, in which we see the monlev of great boy safhas. And I argue that those were um, produced under the patronage of the Return to Allegiance Army. So members of the Zhang clan as well as members of the Cao clan.
1: So also in chapter three, you have I think, what may be my most favorite image in this book. And that is this image from the Musee Musee Guimet that shows the mandala of the five Buddhas with donor figures. I'm wondering if you could walk us through this image and what it shows.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, this is a very complex image, and I'm not surprised that it appeals to you so much because it's very brightly colored and it's um, unusual for a number of reasons. That also contributes to our knowledge of mandalas at Dunhuang. So, uh, to begin with, um, as the title suggests, this is mandala of five bodhisattvas. Um, I'm sorry, five Buddhas actually, and these are the five Buddhas of the Vajradhatu mandala. And this goes back to something that we were discussing earlier. Um, in our conversation, which is how this work, um, this book fits into the scholarly discourse or maybe responding to the um, emphasis, the position that studies of Japanese mandalas have had in the interpretation of mandalas elsewhere in Asia. And one of the arguments that I make is that um, the Mandave Great Bodhisattvas um, had a long history of um, precisely because of its eightfold structure Um, that it was argued by um, many scholars as having been um, an early prototype of the Garbhadatu Mandala. And the reason for that is that at the very center of the Garbhadatu Mandala, we actually see Mahavirakshana in the center of an eight-petaled lotus. Um, The difference, of course, is that in the Garbhadatu Mandala, the central Buddha, Mahavirakshana, is surrounded not by eight bodhisattvas, but rather by four Buddhas and four bodhisattvas. So even though the um imagery of the central buddha um, seated at the center of an open lotus blossom um, seems to evoke the appearance of the mandala of eight great bodhisattvas the spatial configuration of eight attendant deities around the central buddha i think that they actually stem from very different um iconographic lineages and so one of the arguments i make is that um, i think the mandala of eight great bodhisattvas is actually much more closely aligned with uh the Vajradhatu mandala for a number of reasons and also um uh I guess ritual practice associated with the Vajradhatu mandala, especially as it was interpreted at at Dunhuang. So uh, going back to this particular mandala, there are five Buddhas, and one of the fascinating things is that um, the Buddhas are actually painted in the, that is, their bodies are actually painted in the color that is appropriate to their, uh, the direction, the cardinal direction that they represent. And this is highly unusual. So we know that such color systems were in place. Uh, so for example, um, we have Mahavirakshana in the center, again crowned and uh, seated upon a lion throne and with his hands held in the Dhyana Mudra, the Mudra of Meditation, and his body is painted gold. And then we see... Um, Pratnasamava, the Buddha of the South, with blue skin corresponding to that cardinal direction. Amitabha um, representing the Western cardinal with red skin. And we really don't see these color designations in other images at Dunhu. So this is highly unusual. And so the central Buddha, my version, is in the center. And then four corners opposite him are the four Buddhas representing the four cardinal directions. The four Buddhas from... uh, So these represent collectively the five Buddhas of the Rajadhatu Mandala. And these take up roughly two-thirds of the upper part of the painting. Um, And I should also mention this is a very small painting, and this might suggest the circumstances of the patronage. So um, the total height of the painting is just a little over 100 centimeters. So this would actually be around uh, 40 inches or so, so definitely under four feet. So this is not... Um, a spectacularly huge painting. So when we think of mandalas, again, I think a lot of us tend to think of the two realms, mandala, and which are very, very large. Um, you know, we've all seen them reproduced in textbooks. Um, this is actually rather a small, intimate image. And that might pertain to the fact that this was actually, uh, that the donors um, um, actually came from, from a family and that this particular mandala painting was uh, from the dedicatory inscription seemed to have been Um, that the occasion for the production of painting must have been the occasion of a mortuary ritual for one of the family members. So going back to the painting then the upper two-thirds are taken up by the five Buddhas and not only are they painted um, their bodies painted different colors but they're also seated on pedestals and each of the pedestals is um, the animal that is uh, the animal mount that is supposed to be the animal mount of that particular Buddha representing a particular quadrant. And then we also see other deities attending the uh, Buddhas. Um, and in particular, we see um, the offering goddesses, um, the eight inner and outer offering goddesses of the Vajradhatu mandala. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, in the images from early Tibetan Jinhuang, the central Buddha of the eight the Bodhisattvas mandala um, could be Vairokshana or Mahavairokshana. And one of the clearest distinctions between the two is that in images of Mahavairocana, both in the context of the five Buddhas of the Vajradhatu mandala, and also in the mandala of great bodhisattvas, is, is that we see the Buddhas, in this case, or bodhisattvas accompanied by the inner and outer offering goddesses. And these are some of the minor deities uh, that we see in the Vajradhatu mandala, both in the more abbreviated form um, and we should see only the five Buddhas um, in the more complex form of the Vajradhatu Mandala in the Shingon tradition, and also in the context of the Eight Bodhisattva Mandala, in which the central deity is, is Mahavairocana, that is the esoteric Mahavairocana rather than Vairocana. Uh, so we see the um, offering goddesses as well, and then if we move further down the painting, we see an offering altar. So previously I discussed uh, the Uh, uh, altars as support for the visualization of deities of of a mandala. And this is quite interesting because we can actually um, see, there are persistival shifts throughout the painting. And so we can see this mandala altar, and we know it's an altar because there are lamps on either side and ritual implements, um, such as water bottles and and offerings and so forth. Um, And we can see it as if we're looking at it face down. And at the very center of this mandala offer is an eight petaled lotus blossom. So interestingly, this seems to maybe suggest um, precisely the sort of altar um, on which the places of the deities were painted. And then at the bottommost part of the painting, we see the donor image. And here there's yet again, another perspectival shift in which These figures are foreshortened, and they occupy a clearly defined ground plane. So we can see a number of female donor figures to the left side of yet another offering altar, um, again with offerings and then with lamps. And then on the right-hand side, we can see a monk donor and then um, other male donor figures. And the donor figures on both sides of the altar are kneeling on mats and they're facing the center. And going back to a point that I made earlier that this small scale intimate image seemed to have been sponsored on the occasion of a mortuary ritual. Um, Based on the donor inscriptions, uh, we can tell that that, uh, the male donor figure on the right-hand side, to the right-hand side of the monk or behind the monk, um, was actually the deceased father of the donor. And uh, the female donor figures also represent deceased family members. So the deceased mother of the donor and the deceased daughter of the donor. Uh, So it seems very likely that a living donor commissioned this painting in order to sponsor a mortuary ritual for the deceased family members. And so this seems to bring together the family members in the performance of a ritual. So we see them kneeling and facing altar, um, kind of suggesting the continuation of such rituals um, in death, even, even as, in, as in life. And what's particularly fascinating about this image is that um, not only is it highly complex um, and very colorful, but the color designations for the bodies, but uh, we see Mandla's reference a number of times. So we see the five Buddhas of the Vajradhatu mandala at the very top of the painting, um, as I mentioned, occupying really almost two-thirds of the painting. And then we also see the altar, uh, which has an eight-petal lotus. And that also suggests, um, because of its structure, um, this eight-fold structure that's very close to with mandalas, it also suggests perhaps another mandala, perhaps something um, maybe generated through a process of visualization, meditative visualization. So this image
1: really shows how mandalas were connected to rituals. And that's an issue you also take up in chapter four, which is titled Mandala's Repentance and Vision. And in particular here, you're concerned with repentance rituals and taking the bodhisattva precepts. So what role do mandalas play in this particular context? (laughs)
0: <laughs> so, in this particular context, now I also want to backtrack for a moment to say that not only were mandlas, um did they play a prominent role in the ritual life of, of um, local population, but also for um, lay people as well. So, the donors that we see in the painting, um, with the exception of the donor, are obviously lay people, and I think that's really important to keep in mind as well, because if we go back to um, sort of our knowledge, um, the deep knowledge that we have of the Shingon Turan's Mandla. I think we're generally thinking of of mandalas in the context of monastic initiation rituals. And here we can see very clearly that um, the painting of mandalas was actually sponsored, could be sponsored and was sponsored by lay people, um, both in portable paintings, like the small painting I just described and also in mural paintings. And then to answer your question more directly, so you asked about um, mandalas and, and what role they played in repentance rituals. And I was looking in particular at one Dunholm manuscript in the Paleo collection, um, number thirty nine twenty, and there are two ritual manuals in the um, this particular manuscript that describe uh, repentance rituals, and and these rituals are are, are quite fascinating because they. Uh, The spatial template that is described in the rituals um, seems to evoke the Vajradhatu mandala. So, for example, there are references that are made to um, the 37 deities, um, so the 37 core deities of the the Vajradhatu mandala. And um, there's also a sequence of the five Buddhas, so the five Buddhas of the Vajradhatu mandala, such as the ones pictured in the painting that we just discussed. Um, And these are mentioned um, in the ritual sequences as well. Um, And then some of the ritual implements include uh, the wielding of vajras and the wearing of a five Buddhist crown. Um, This would also draw upon the Vajradhatu mandala. And then in addition to the main text of the the manuscripts, um, there are also interlinear notations that are made and these are quite interesting because, of course, these could have been made at a later point in time, but um, these make references to a five Buddhist, eight Bodhisattvas altar. And so there. Um, these are small notations that are made um, in small script, small characters, um, interlinear notations. And so there are references made in the number of points. So, for example, in one of the manuals, um, that uh, describes an altar, a circumambulating altar, um, there's a small notation that's made to the five Buddhas and eight Bodhisattvas. And I conclude that this might suggest that the altar that um, is being circumambulated is a five Buddhas, eight Bodhisattvas altar. And in addition, there is also um, another such notation that is made um, in the context of a reference to um, one of the stages of the repentance ritual. And then um, also notation that's made to and um, eight Bodhisattva's Abhisheka. There are also other interlinear notations that are made um, in reference to an altar of Mayavaraksana and these 37 deities. Again, references to the Vajradhatu mandala um, and both in the context of the 37 core deities of the Vajradhatu mandala and also to the five Buddhas, um, the five main Buddhas of the vajradhatu Mandala, um, in conjunction with the eight Bodhisattvas. And so I find these notations quite interesting, and the references to um, the five Buddhas altars, five Buddhas, eight Bodhisattvas altars, are also echoed in other... Um, sources, other manuscript sources at at Jin Huang. and so another thing that I was trying to do in this chapter, um, in addition to trying to think a little bit about the ritual context for mandalas at Junhuang, and also how this might have have um, informed or. Um, might have pertained to the iconographic program cave shrines is also the type of information that um, that we get from from different types of manuscripts. So um, the manuscript that I just referred to, the one in the Paleo collection 3920, um, gives very detailed textual instructions to how the um, ritual should be carried out. There are the small interlinear notations I mentioned. Um, there are also other markings. So, so other scholars are currently working on these um, manuscript markings. Um, but there are no diagrams. There are no illustrations. And so um, they seem to describe these um, rather complicated alters, um, but there are no visuals to accompany the text. Uh, and then in this emphasis on... Uh, Conveying information textually rather than visually um, is carried out in in another manuscript, which um, also describes altars. Again, some pertain to the five Buddhas and also to the eight Bodhisattvas. Um, and then we have yet another manuscript, also from the Pale Collection, 2012, in which we have uh, diagrams of altars and no text accompanying to them. Uh, accompanying them, so so it's it's fascinating to think through how. Uh, practitioners at Dunhuang might have made use of these different types of materials and how they might have relied on a, a set of materials rather than one manuscript alone in, in order to learn uh, the sort of practices that were carried out um, that in conjunction with, with the mandalas.
1: So chapter five takes you, as you title it, Beyond the Mandala, and here you focus on the sutra on the names of the Buddha and also on different representations of bodhisattvas. Um, and especially important in this chapter is the influence of the gandavyuha chapter of the
0: Avatamsaka Sutra. Could you explain how this all connects for us? Yes, yes. So I was actually really fascinated by something I read in literature um, that pointed out that in the gandavyuha chapter, and the gandavyuha chapter relates the pilgrimage of Sudana, the boy pilgrim Sudana, who visits Uh, 53 um, uh, spiritual mentors or or Kalyanamitra in order to learn the uh, way of the bodhisattva and um, there's a sequence of eight goddesses uh, among these 53 uh, Kalyanamitra um, in which they are arranged in a circular fashion um, at Bogaya, which, of course, was the site of the enlightenment of Shakyamuni under the Bodhi tree. And this seems to suggest a circular arrangement that is, is very mandala-like, um, similar, in fact, to the circular configuration of eight bodhisattvas that we do see in, in some of the imagery, in, 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 for example, in the mural painting in, in Mogokki 14. And so that was quite interesting to me. And, and also, going back to the, the 53... Kalyanamitra, these 53 spiritual mentors whom, with whom Sudhana meets, um, my attention was drawn to a series of paintings of bodhisattvas in Mogok K-14. So this is a cave that belongs to the post Tibetan period at Dunhuang. And I believe um, that may have been sponsored under the patronage of the Zhang clan of uh, the Return to Allegiance Army, the rulers of Dunhuang after the um, Tibetan period. And there is a sequence of bodhisattvas, and these spread across all four walls of the cave shrine. And there are 51 of them altogether. And they're actually quite quite tall. They're not quite life size, but they're actually rather tall, um, strikingly tall. And in addition to the 51 bodhisattvas, there are also large paintings flanking the entrance, which is on the east wall, of Manjushri and Samantabhadra. And what I found particularly compelling is that if we add together the two paintings of Samantabhadra and Manjushri, the core bodhisattvas associated with the Avatamsaka Sutra and and also with the um, also with the Gondavyuha chapter, so the um, the first and last uh, spiritual mentors with whom Sudhana meets, um, that if we add those to the fifty one bodhisattvas, um, that this actually forms a cycle of fifty three. And I found the number to be highly suggestive and I want to look into this a little bit further. And um, these bodhisattvas, these these are standing bodhisattvas, um, each of them enclosed within its own frame. Um, And these uh, tend to become more common around this period, that is the post-event period at Dunhuang. And uh, they do not appear in other caves in such great numbers and they do not appear spread across all four walls. Also, what's particularly compelling, in addition to the relatively tall size, um, is the fact that um, there is a painting um, on the north wall of the cave, of Mokau Cave 14, so this would be on your right as you enter, all the way toward the rear wall, so the conjunction of the two walls in the corner, in which um, there seems to be a prompt toward circumambulation because, the, the, the deity painted on that wall, Vajrasattvas, um, his head points toward the right. And this almost seems to prompt the viewer to, to, to move in that direction. That would be actually clockwise, um, maybe suggest a clockwise circumambulation. So that's something that I discussed in this chapter as well. Um, so there seems to be kind of a, a, a spatiality in, in a sequence, um, um, in a sense of movement that's prompted Uh, by these bodhisattva paintings in conjunction with other paintings in in the cave. So going back to the Sutra on the Names of the Buddha, so in each, um, for the 51 bodhisattvas that are located closest to the floor, and as I mentioned, each of them in their own frame, uh, there's a cartouche. And for most of the cartouches, the um, inscriptions have faded due to sun exposure. And I was able to um, retrieve information from some of the cartouches that are located on the rear wall, on the west wall. And this is because they were shielded from sun exposure by the pillar um, in the middle of the main chamber of the K shrine. So these shielded the inscriptions on the rear wall from sun exposure. And when I Punch these into C beta. I was very surprised to find that um, what I pulled up uh, was actually some hits in the Sutra on the Names of the Buddha, um, which of course is not an esoteric sutra and it has nothing to do with, um, really on the face of so it, with the mandala of the great bodhisattvas or with the Vajradhatu mandala or with any of the, the sutras that pertain to mandalas. Um, but what the Sutra on the Names of the Buddha um, does have to um, what that does relate to is is repentance, and so I think that um, repentance is a unifying feature in this particular cave shrine. And for those um, in your audience who are familiar with Dunhuang art, um, they will there are some members of your audience who might be familiar, for example, with the very popular thousand Buddhas motif at Dunhuang. This is a f- repetitive motif of small seated Buddhas. And this is a motif that scholars have demonstrated, draws upon the sutra on the names of the Buddha. Um, so what is particularly interesting then about these relatively large bodhisattvas um, in Mokka K14 in um, their names, so these are actually bodhisattva names um, that were brushed inside the cartouches located um, next to each of the bodhisattvas, um, is that the Sutra on the Names of the Buddha not only conveys the names of the Buddhas, um, but it also conveys the names of Bodhisattvas as well, um, and Sutra's names also. Um, So this seems to be um, um, maybe form of repentance that emphasizes Bodhisattvas rather than the Buddhas, the Buddhas that we commonly associate with the Thousand Buddhas motif at Junhuang. And the emphasis on Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, excuse me, also brings me back to the Eight Bodhisattvas, and um, I, uh, my attention was drawn to the uh, Chari. and this is also important in the context of um, the Gandhavyuha, um and the, the Avatamsaka Sutra, and this is um, so. This is a, a text that was appended to appended to the Gandavyuh chapter, and um, this exists in several forms uh, from Dunhuang. Um, So we see this represented in the Dunhuang manuscripts. And this is important, I think, for two reasons. Uh, First of all, this also formed the basis of repentance rituals. And secondly, there is one particular translation of the Bhadrachari, attributed to Maghavajra, um, in which and this is distinct from the other translations of the Bhadrachari uh, because there is a eulogy of the eight bodhisattvas on the mandala of eight great bodhisattvas inserted into the um, into this particular translation, into the Bhadrachari. And so I speculate that since it has already been demonstrated that mandalas uh, play a role in repentance rituals um, that the bodhisattvas painted in Moko K-14 also that they pertain to repentance rituals, that that perhaps the Mandel of Bodhisattvas may have had um, yet even greater resonance in the context of repentance rituals in that they are referenced in the Bhadrachari. And that in turn might serve as a link between um, the sequence of Bodhisattvas, the 53 Bodhisattvas, and the, um, the Mandel of Bodhisattvas. Um, that is, the Mandel of Bodhisattvas may have made sense Equally in esoteric contexts. Um and it's also a motif that appears in, in other contexts as well that are not necessarily esoteric. So in the context of the Bhadhacharya, which in turn was associated with um the Gandhavyha chapter. So um a source which is decidedly non esoteric. So this is sort of a long winded way of, of saying that. Um the Malawi Great bodhisattvas uh, played an important role in repentance rituals, and that uh, the repentance rituals uh, very likely drew on a number of sources. Um, I think that this helps us understand um, the iconographic program of one of the cave shrines at Dunhuang, Cave Fourteen, which contains an important example of the model of Eight Great Bodhisattvas. Um, at the same time, that the uh, repentance rituals and the resonance of the Maud 8 Great may have spanned not only the esoteric traditions, um, but possibly also the Hawaiian traditions um, or Mahayana esoteric traditions as well.
1: So you've made a really compelling c- case for the complexity of influences and practices at Dunhuang. And in the epilogue to your work, you refer to Dunhuang as a third space. I'm wondering if to kind of sum up, you could tell us what you mean by this and tell us why you think this site is so important for understanding esoteric Buddhism in China.
0: Okay, so by describing Dunhong as a third space, and this is a term that um, comes from post-colonial theory, um, I think this takes us back to a point that you raised earlier in our conversation that is trying to use this material to address the... Um, influence in studies of Chinese and other mandalas, that is Buddhist mandalas, elsewhere in Asia, um, the influence that has been exerted upon this material by studies on Japanese mandalas. And what is particularly striking about Dunhuang and the Dunhuang mandalas is precisely the way in which um, they really speak to the meeting of different cultures, in particular the meeting of uh, the Chinese and Tibetan cultures. And in some cases, that correspondence, that, that dialogue um, is expressed um, uh, really nice in the spatial way. So for example, the pairing of mandalas that alternate between the Tang and Tibetan styles. There are also, um, of course I mentioned earlier the bilingual manuscripts. Um, there are also cartouches um, associated with the Mandlavet great boyisafas that were oriented vertically as well as horizontally in order to accommodate Chinese as well as Tibetan scripts. Um, But yeah, in other cases, uh, there are diagrams. So there are also diagrams, um, ink monochrome diagrams of mandalas, which have no inscriptions. And um, this really speaks to the difficulty then of kind of teasing out clear-cut distinctions between Chinese and Tibetans. So I see this material, um, this material, materials, really speaking to an in-between quality, in-between quality of Dunhuang, particularly during the Tibetan and post-Tibetan periods, in which you have uh, the period of Tibetan rule, and then even after the Tibetan, of, the period of Tibetan rule, that is during the quatrian, or return to allegiance army period, that rules up until the early 11th century, that you continue to have the Tibetan presence, um, exists in the form of the use of of the Tibetan writing system um, that we see also in painting styles. And so there's there's a very interesting dialogue um, between uh, the two cultures, uh, between two writing systems, uh, between two artistic styles. And I think there are other ways as well in which the Torah Buddhism that was practiced at Dinh at this time also suggests dialogue between Chinese and Tibetan cultures. So, another um, issue that I raise is um, kind of the parallel quality of um, uh, the uh, ritual practices that we see evidenced by the manuscript evidence at Dunhuang. So, for example, um, not only based upon the Vajradhatu mandala, but also um, I talk very briefly about the uh, um, yet another. Tantra, the sarva Durgati Prashadana Tantra, which is strongly associated with Tibetan Buddhism. And um, there are certainly elements of, of that um, tantra, that cycle that uh, strongly echo the um, Ushnisha Vijaya that we talked about very early on in our conversation. So, so there's very interesting dialogue, I think, that takes place at, at various levels um, in religious practice, um, in artistic practice, um, in manuscript culture and um and i think it really speaks to the um hybrid quality uh, the multicultural nature of of Dunhuang. and and so this uh, i think is really important to keep in mind when we're thinking about a very specific context in which buddhist mandalas developed um a very specific uh, spatial geographic cultural context um that might have been very distinct from what was happening in central plains china
1: Michelle, we've taken up quite a bit of your time, but before we go, I want to ask what's next for you? Are you working on a new research project or do you have plans for
0: one? Um, Well, I'm currently working on an article link project and this extends my interest in the uh, post-event period at at Junhuang and it's on paintings of Uh, Mahamayuri, um, an esoteric Buddhist deity, uh, commonly shown seated on a peacock mount. And so I'm interested both in mural paintings and also in one example of this particular deity, the um, peacock wisdom king um, um, that was painted as a portable painting. So I'm interested in Um, for example, why these images uh, appear at Dunhuang only during the 10th century, and uh, whether there may have been um, some connection between the circulation of these images to Dunhuang and the intermarriage uh, between the Cao clan uh, that ruled Dunhuang in the post-Event period and the kingdom of Kothan. Um, And then the long term, I'm pursuing a project on Buddhist sculpture, and here I'm particularly interested in uh, materiality and um, in sort of ways of thinking about how materiality might have informed the sacrality of Buddhist sculpture. So, um, right now the plan is to explore Buddhist statues that were made in different materials. Um, so one of which is sandalwood and the resonance of sandalwood in Buddhism you know I think is very obvious and other materials would be uh, stone um, maybe bronze and, and so forth and this was really sparked by an article that I did earlier on miracle tales um, concerning statues that came to life and and their descriptions kind of very precise descriptions of, of statues that were discovered under rather fantastical um, even miraculous circumstances and, and with a lot of attention being paid to their material properties and some of the miraculous qualities of those statues, in turn, um, really came to rest on how the way in which these animated statues behaved, the way in which they moved and interacted with devotees actually defied the limitations of the materiality. So, for example, stone statues that suddenly became very light, um, things of that nature. So, so that's I'm kind of at the beginning of stages of that right now, so we'll see how that goes. That sounds
1: amazing. I, I will really look forward to your work on statues. And thank you so much for taking time to be with us this afternoon and for chatting with us about your book.
0: Okay. Thank you, Natasha. It was a real pleasure.
1: Thanks for joining
0: us on New Books and Buddhist
1: Studies, part of the New Books Network.